yesterday with a special post from Edo. By order of His Supreme Majesty the Shogun, two decrees were received. It befalls upon my function as the governor of Nagasaki to communicate the contents of these imperial decrees to Capitan Du-sama and Capitan Blomhoff-sama in the most precise manner. In the matter of the wife, the child, the wet nurse, and the maidservant of Mr. Blomhoff, all of whom accompanied him on his voyage to the Empire of Japan, permission to remain in the Empire of Japan is herewith formally denied, and the four aforementioned persons are herewith ordered to leave the Empire of Japan on the same ship which brought them here. Kanazawa Okura, Governor of Nagasaki, 1817. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 27, The Bell of Nagasaki On December 6th, 1817, exactly 200 years ago to the day that I wrote the script for this episode, two Dutch ships, the Canton and the Vrue Agatha, were towed out of the harbor of Nagasaki, Japan, by a small flotilla of Japanese boats. Once away from the sheltered harbor and the island in it called Nishima, that served as the sole outpost of Holland in the Empire of Japan, the ships raised sail and made way for the East Indies, which the Dutch then called Batavia. On board the Vroe Agatha were three fascinating women. There was Petronella Muntz, a young woman who served as a wet nurse, to the small baby Johannes Blomhoff, a bit more than a year old, who was also on board. There was a maidservant, originally from Java, called Marati, who was attached to the Blomhoff household. And there was Tidia Blomhoff, whose maiden name was Bergsma, the name by which history principally knows her. Aged 29, pretty, with sad eyes and in frail health, Tidia Bergsma Blomhoff was a historically important figure without really realizing it. She and Petronella shared the distinction of being the first Western women to visit Japan, which in the second decade was the most isolated, closed, and mysterious country on planet Earth. They didn't get to stay for long. Having arrived in August of that year, 1817, to join Tidia's husband, the diplomat and military man Jan Kok Blomhoff, in his posting as Holland's representative to Japan, the women ran afoul of what they discovered to be a very strongly held decree by the government of Japan. No Western women were to be allowed at all on Japanese soil. After three months of petitions, remonstrations, and diplomatic wrangling, the Japanese sent Tidia packing. Forced to leave Japan without her husband, who remained, 
she would have to make the arduous return journey to Batavia, and eventually back to Holland, as essentially a single mother. It was clear that the Japanese government, the military official who ruled the country, Shogun Tokugawa Ayanari, had no use for Tidia Blomhoff and Petronella Muntz. Yet curiously, during their brief stay on that island in Nagasaki Harbor, the two women became, if not famous, certainly the object of fascination for the few Japanese who encountered them. Their images, drawn and painted by two leading Japanese artists of the time, were reproduced many times and eventually came to represent the image of all Western women in the minds of the Japanese people, at least until Japan was open to formal Western contact later in the 19th century. Though she's almost been forgotten by history, and her story exhumed only in this century by an enterprising modern descendant of the Bergsma family, Tidia Bergsma Blomhoff represents a fascinating case study of just how big and mysterious the world was in the second decade. Today, Japan is easily accessible to the West. It's just a 10-hour plane ride from Los Angeles. But in 1817, traveling to Japan was almost like making an interstellar journey to another planet. Tidia Blomhoff made that journey with a baby in her arms, no less, and she eventually lived to tell about it, just barely. Her image would live curiously on after her, representing one of the first points of awkward contact between peoples of the world who were very different, and who had little conception of each other. Tidia Blomhoff deserves to be remembered as she was, a pioneer. So join me now for the interesting and little-known story of what you might call the Bell of Nagasaki. Good evening. Before we begin this evening, as is customary, I have a few brief announcements and housekeeping matters. First, I want to mention my other podcast. I'm a guest host on the New Books Network Environmental Studies channel. So far, I've interviewed one author, Dr. Ryan Fisher, author of the environmental history book Cattle Colonialism, and I've got more interviews coming up, such as one with Sam White, author of A Cold Welcome, a book about the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age has come up a couple of times on Second Decade, so this is not so far out in left field. If you want to hear me on this other podcast, go to newbooksnetwork.com, click the Science and Tech bar, and select Enviro Studies, and you should start to see interviews filtering up on that page. I'm one of them. Second, I'm offering an online class, and you can join. This is really exciting. I'm going to be teaching a course which is called the World War II History and Virtual Global Tour. This is a six-week interactive course, eight weeks counting the two bonus sessions, where not only will I be giving you a very in-depth history lesson on the Second World War, I will be literally a virtual tour guide showing you through Google Earth the various places where it happened. Imagine, for example, seeing Omaha Beach in Normandy, the cliffs where the German pillboxes were, the beach where Allied troops slogged ashore under heavy fire, and understanding the context of what happened here, why it happened, and who it happened to. I'm building a list of locations for the course and developing an interactive framework where you can experience them through your computer and discuss and ask questions. It's a totally new concept in online teaching. If you're interested, I made a short link bit.ly, that's L-Y, slash ww2history. That's a bit.ly link, ww numeral 2 history. That'll bring up the website on the course with pricing and scheduling information. 
So if you want to join, if you want to buy a, a seat in the course, please uh, join me. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I'm going to put the link on the website, the webpage for this episode. Third, there's going to be an off-topic episode associated with this episode, sort of an after show, a little bit more informal with some history not specifically rooted to the 18-teens, but related to what we're talking about here. This is, again, another off-topic episode. I've done one already. In this episode, uh, this, this show, uh, this bonus episode is going to be called Benihana Nights, and in it I'm going to be taking a brief tour of the relationship between Japan and the United States and how Japan sits uh, in particularly American consciousness, talking not just about famous Western travelers to Japan during its isolation, including Commodore Perry, who pops up at the end of this episode, but fun and quirky stuff. Things like how we got Benihana restaurants, what the deal was with that famous book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, and how a TV miniseries about Japan had a huge and very negative effect on the global environment. So if you want to hear it, remember, off-topic episode, the after show called Benihana Nights, that second decade off-topic, that's going to drop simultaneously with this episode. Finally, I want to give a much overdue shout-out to my Patreon supporters, especially Timothy Strain, but all of you who helped make this podcast possible. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for your continued support. And now let's get to our subject, Tedia. I should probably say two things here before we get to her related to Dutch names. I don't speak Dutch and I have no idea of Dutch pronunciation, so I'm probably going to butcher the names if I haven't already. If you are Dutch or speak it, I mean no disrespect. I'm from Oregon and I've been to Amsterdam once, so I'm doing my best. And also, let's face the elephant in the room here. The full name of Tedia's husband is Jan Koch Blomhoff. Let's not get all giggly Beavis and Butthead style about that middle name. While Tedia is the subject of our story, I want to begin not with her, but much later, at the dawn of this century, the year 2001. In that year, a man named René Bersma, a Dutch-born diplomat and his Japanese wife, made a trip to the city of Nagasaki, which is most famous to us from having been the site of the second atom bomb at the end of World War II. But much earlier in history, Nagasaki was the sole point of contact between Japan in the Tokugawa era and the West particularly with trading. By 2001, the old island of Dishima, where the Dutch outpost was located, was no longer an island. René Bersma wrote that in a museum at Dishima, he suddenly came face to face with a picture of a Western woman who had visited Japan very briefly in 1817, and her maiden name, with a change in spelling, was the same as his family name, Bergsma. Despite having been to Japan off and on for more than 30 years, René Bursma had never heard of this distant relative, and the desire to find out more about her led down a fascinating rabbit hole. After an impressive effort at research involving primary documents, including original records from the Dishima Trading Post and the Tokugawa Shogunate, René Bursma wrote a book published in 2002 called Tidia, The First Western Woman in Japan, and it's the primary basis for this episode. I've read a lot of history, but René Bersma's book is really exciting because it brings us a story that virtually nobody ever knew before and illuminates a fascinating person from the past. Tidia's story and her life began in the winter of 1786, where she was born into the family of one Aeneas Bergsma, a prosperous lawyer in the city of Leeuwarden, Holland. 
Ennius would, after the second decade, eventually become Chief Justice of the Dutch Supreme Court. The family was well-to-do. They had a maid and a cook, and rubbed shoulders socially with some of the more important people tramping through the Low Countries in the late 18th century, particularly bankers and traders, which is what the Dutch were known for at that time. Far from being a swampy country of windmills and wooden shoes, Holland was, in the 1780s, literally the crossroads of the world. Dutch money, finance, shipping, and trade voyages all over the world, particularly to the Far East, were the most valuable commodity on the world market before the discovery of oil, I'm talking about spices, came from. The spice trade had built Holland and its powerhouse economy beginning in the Age of Discovery. When certain prominent Americans, their names were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, needed money to finance their revolution, and later the debt left over from the revolution, they invariably popped up in the streets of waterlogged cities like Amsterdam and The Hague to try to get some bank to help blow away the British. The Dutch were all about commerce. That was the line of work that brought a young man, Jan Koch Blomhoff, to Leeuwarden almost by accident. A court case involving some questionable cargo got heard in that city, and Ennius Bergsma, Tedia's dad, was the judge who heard the case. This was in 1805. The judge liked Jan and brought him home for dinner, where he caught sight of Tedia, then 19. Jan asked the judge for his daughter's hand, and was promptly denied. Promising as he was, Jan Koch Blomhoff still didn't have the money that Judge Bergsma thought he needed to provide for his daughter. Whether he intended to try again for her hand later is unknown, but Jan told the judge that he was soon off to the East Indies, Batavia, as you recall it was named, to make his fortune. He did exactly that. By 1809, Jan Koch Blomhoff had left Batavia for the even more distant port of Dishima, the small trading island in Nagasaki Harbor, to serve as the warehouse master for the trading posts there. This was really the only outlet for Japanese Western trade permitted by the Tokugawa government, and the beginning of the second decade was a touchy time for the Dutch in East Asia, thanks to a fellow we've met several times on this show, the short Corsican named Napoleon Bonaparte. You may recall from episode 7 that Batavia, the Dutch East Indies, sort of fell into limbo during the Napoleonic Wars when the little Corsican conquered Holland and made it basically a radio-controlled puppet state of France. The British, in the form of Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles, who we've also met previously on this show, sought to benefit. In 1813, Raffles, who was then the British governor of Batavia, tried to score the Dishima training post as well. He sent a British ship to take over Dishima, or if not possible, to convince the Dutch, and especially the Dutch governor there, Henrik Doof, to give in to the British. Doof was intransigent. Between 1811, when the British captured Batavia, and 1815, when Holland was restored as a country, the little trading post at Dishima was the only place in the world still flying the Dutch flag. Doof sent his trusty lieutenant, Jan Koch Blomhoff, to negotiate with the British with instructions to protect Dutch sovereignty at all costs. Ultimately, the negotiations were not to Raffles' liking. In fact, Raffles had Blomhoff arrested and shipped back to London in chains, which is how he got back to Europe in 1814. Ultimately, the British government released him and apologized. Napoleon was on the ropes by now anyway, and it looked very much like Holland would eventually be re-established as an independent country, which in fact it was. Jan Koch Blomhoff was even knighted by the King of Holland, which definitely looked good on his resume. So good, in fact, that the new, or newly restored, Dutch court 
ordered Lomhoff to go back to Deshima and take over as Henrik Duf's successor as director of the trading post. So now Blomhoff's got it all. He's rich, he's chummy with the king, he's got a knighthood, and a plum appointment in the Far East, which will lead to even more riches and prestige. All he's lacking is, you guessed it, a wife. A storybook twist now occurs, at least in René Bursma's pages. Walking down the street in The Hague, minding his own business, Jan Koch Blomhoff happens to see none other than Judge Bergsma, the dad of that fetching young lass he tried to marry ten years earlier. This is now 1815, you recall. Even more lucky, as Blomhoff fell back into Judge Bergsma's orbit, he found out that the young lass was an unmarried spinster at 29, an unusually advanced age for a European woman in the second decade not to be married. Jan Koch Blomhoff fixed that pretty quickly. On April 12, 1815, he and Tidia Bergsma were married. This does sound very storybookish, and if it sounds a little too good to be true, well, it sort of is. Jan Koch Blomhoff had a secret back in Japan. While living in Dishima in 1812, he had a liaison with a Japanese courtesan, who was the only kind of woman allowed to mix with the Westerners. She became pregnant and gave birth to his child. The courtesan died. The baby was allowed to live on Dishima Island. In point of fact, the child, whose name was not recorded, died too while Blomhoff was being transported to England in irons, but he didn't know that by the time he got his commission. That was going to be an awkward conversation with Tidia, if they ever got around to having it. At precisely the wrong moment, Napoleon spoiled the young couple's plans. Like Glenn Close at the end of Fatal Attraction, Bonaparte just wouldn't stay dead. He popped up in the bathtub, metaphorically speaking, by escaping from Elba and threatening Europe again. His 100-day winning streak ended with a big bummer at Waterloo in June 1815, the subject of a future episode, but while it lasted, Jan's assignment to Japan was cancelled, and he was instead reassigned to a military post at Dordrecht, Holland, 30 miles from The Hague. Now pregnant, but sick from bad river water around Dordrecht, Tidia went to her parents' house in The Hague to have her baby. Johannes Koch Blomhoff was born there on January 29, 1816. A few months later, with the war over, the Dutch government reinstated Blomhoff's assignment to Dishima. He was going to Japan after all. And, quite out of step with precedent, and perhaps against the advice of those in the know, Jan decided to bring his wife and baby with him. This is where the story gets a bit hazy. It's unclear to me exactly how or why Jan thought he could get away with bringing Tidia and their son with him to Nagasaki, flaunting the well-known prohibition of Western women in Japan by the Tokugawa government. There is some discussion of this issue in Rene Bersma's book, but I'd like to beg your indulgence to return to it after the break. Suffice it to say, by the end of July 1816, the Blomhoff family was making serious preparations for the very long and arduous voyage, first to Batavia, then to Japan. Tidia seems to have been in frail health for much of her life, and she hired a wet nurse from The Hague to accompany them. Petronella Munce, aged 22, was unmarried, but obviously had recently had a child of her own. One wonders what her story was, but alas, it's lost to history. Leaving from Texel, Holland, on July 30, 1816, aboard a ship called the Surabaya, Jan Koch Blomhoff, his wife Tidia, their son Johannes, and wet nurse Petronella endured a grueling 151-day voyage across the world to the East Indies arriving at Batavia two days after Christmas, 1816. 
there was still another voyage that lay ahead, the uncertain passage to the mysterious and fiercely xenophobic country ruled by the shoguns, the islands of Japan, which no western woman had ever seen. Tidia and Petronella would be the first. The history of Japan's policy of isolation from the rest of the world is an extremely complicated topic. There's no way I can do any more than just scratch the surface, but we have to lay some background to understand the place where Tia Bergsma Blomhoff suddenly found herself in 1817. Japan went through an extraordinarily long medieval and feudal period. For the entirety of the Middle Ages and well into the early modern period, Japan, though nominally ruled by an emperor, was under the control of various military clans, the samurai, and the chief ruler of them was the shogun. For century after century, warlords and clans clanged swords in forests and mountaintops and on beaches all over Japan, until in 1600, one leader, Tokugawa Ieyasu, won a key battle at a place called Sekigahara, which cleared the way for the unification of Japan under his family's rule. Once they had Japan in their grasp, the Tokugawa were pretty thorough in cleaning house. They banned firearms from Japan, and they enacted numerous reform decrees, including forest and environmental protection, and notably, the strict control of contact with the West, including, and especially, religious influence and trade. In the 16th century, Catholic missionaries, principally from Spain and Portugal, were seen as destabilizing to Japanese society. The Tokugawa wanted to get rid of them most of all. And as the West didn't have that much in the way of goods that the Japanese wanted, it wasn't so hard to control trade. In 1633, the policy called Sakoku was enacted. This policy restricted trade with only a few partners. The Chinese, the Ryukyu Islands, that's Okinawa, and the only Western power allowed, the Dutch. All trade with the Chinese and Dutch had to go through the port of Nagasaki, and specifically Deshima Island, a walled compound where the Japanese could keep foreigners penned up, and under tight control, in one unified place. Dishima and the trading post there was to be Yonkok Blomhoff's assignment. When you understand the worldview of the Tokugawa, that foreigners, non-Japanese, were dangerous to their society, it's obvious why foreign women in particular would have been banned from the country. In the very male-dominated trades, at least in the 19th century, of diplomacy and international commerce, there would have been no need for women to be present at the single foreign compound in Japan anyway, and allowing them would be to tempt Japanese men with dangerous foreign influence. It also makes sense why it didn't necessarily work the other way. You recall that Yonkok Blomhoff had a little ring-a-ding-ding with a Japanese courtesan, and such women were permitted to visit Dishima Island. It was fine for prostitutes, heavily stigmatized in Japan, to be dirtied by contact with foreigners, but it would be quite another thing for a Japanese man to defile himself with a foreign woman. So then we come to the question, why did Jan think he could get away with bringing his wife and his child's wet nurse to Nagasaki? Did he really think that the Japanese authorities, who couldn't even take a crap without the shogun's lackeys and Edo signing off on it first, were going to allow this? It's not entirely clear from Brene Bursma's book, but the answer appears to be yes, or at least maybe. Later, after he returned from Japan, Blomhoff confided in Judge Bergsma, Tidia's father, and said that he had consulted five Japanese legal documents, 
from which he drew a supportable interpretation that their law would permit the presence of Western women. Curiously, though, in the petitions Blomhoff and Tidia herself made to the governor of Nagasaki, which I'll get to shortly, they don't mention these supposed precedents. It may have been an intentionally bold act meant to chip away at Japanese isolation. In the years following the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Holland was eager to show that she, and not Great Britain, was boss in Asia, where it came to European colonies and trade with Asian nations. Blomhoff may have been trying to dare the Japanese authorities to expel his family, hoping they wouldn't want to sour improved relations with Holland by doing so. Who knows? In hindsight, it seems like an idiotic decision, but there may be a piece of the puzzle we're missing, and we may never know. Also, the condition of the Dutch post at Dishima was not known to the Europeans. Due to the war, not to mention the lengthy delay in getting messages across the world by sailing ship, no one in Holland had heard from Dishima for years. If Henrik Doof was still alive and still there, he would have been in residence at the post for 14 years. There were a lot of uncertainties about the mission. After arriving in Batavia, the Blomhoff spent about six months on Java, the central island of the Dutch colony. Tidia mixed with some of the Dutch colonial elite, and she seems to have been well-liked. She picked up a Javanese servant, a woman named Marathi, and Jan quickly made preparations to assume his post on Deshima Island. On July 1, 1817, they set out for Japan. A convoy of two ships, the Vroe Agatha, which carried the important passengers, and a merchant ship called the Canton. The ship sailed in a weather window between two typhoons which were endemic in the South China Sea in late summer. The voyage took about six weeks. On August 16, 1817, they arrived at their destination, the strange walled island of foreigners in the bay of the great city of Nagasaki. All interactions with the Japanese were driven heavily by ritual and protocol. In this case, a special procedure of flags and ritual cannon fire by the Dutch ships, laid down by the Japanese nearly 200 years before, was necessary to gain entrance to Nagasaki Harbor past Japanese sentries. It was communication. The Dutch had to signal who they were and who was aboard. Captain Whitson of the Vroe Agatha, with the flags, described the ship's cargo and passengers, and he communicated the presence of the woman and of Jan's child aboard. Instantly there was trouble. The Japanese shore installation raised a black flag, indicating the permission to proceed had been denied. The Dutch ships dropped anchor, and the shore station signaled with flags to repeat the message about who was on board. You could almost imagine the Nagasaki harbor master doing a double stake. Run that by me again? Ultimately, the ships were delayed until the next afternoon, when finally the signal came that they could proceed toward Dishima. No doubt everyone was a little on edge. But that afternoon, watching from the deck of the Vroe Agatha, Tidia Blomhoff and Petronella Muntz became the first European women to set eyes on the Japanese mainland. The reunion of the Dutch was a happy one. Blomhoff found that the Dutch contingent he'd left behind in 1813, including Henrik Doof, was still alive, six men who had not been off Tsushima Island in years. Doof in his memoirs wrote this, quote, Indescribable was the joy of us Hollanders, of whom only six survived in Japan. We cared not one whit which nationality the approaching ships might be. Most assuredly, we would finally receive some news. Blomhoff's news was momentous. The wars in Europe were over, Napoleon imprisoned, and Holland re-established as an independent country. Doof was anxious to go home. The news he had for Blomhoff wasn't as happy. 
he had to report that Blomhoff's daughter by the Japanese courtesan had died shortly after he left in December 1813. Evidently, Tidia knew about this situation by now. Perhaps she'd been dreading having to introduce her son, Johannes, to his Japanese half-sister. After the ships anchored, soon the women came ashore at Tishima Island. They were greeted by a dozen Japanese officials, envoys of the governor of Nagasaki, Kanazawa Okura. With their silk robes, swords, and topknots, they probably looked as weird to Tidia as she did to them. She and Petronella were the first European women these Japanese had ever seen. Ultimately, she and the family were escorted to a small house on the island that had been prepared for them. You can imagine the place. Soft lanterns, sliding doors covered in rice paper, that sort of thing. Once the initial pleasantries were done with, the Japanese, through interpreters, began to quiz the Dutch officials. What was the meaning of bringing women, Western women, to Japan? Apparently, Jan Koch Blomhoff was unwell, some tropical bug he picked up in Batavia, which was usually the fate of Europeans in colonies like this. The Dutchman told the Japanese that helping Jan through his illness was the reason for the presence of his family. This seems like a pretty thin excuse. Nowhere in the record, at least as presented by René Bursma, were those five legal precedents that Blomhoff apparently studied actually argued to the Japanese officials. And it doesn't seem they bought it anyway. When the officials returned to Nagasaki proper, there was undoubtedly an awkward scene in the office of Governor Kanazawa. At dawn the next day, the officials hurried over to the island and told Blomhoff and Doof that the governor had withdrawn his temporary permission for them to land. Tidia, Petronella, and the little bundle of joy had to go. Oh, and the maid, too. This was the beginning of a cycle of petitions and denials that flowed back and forth between the Dutch on Dishima Island and the Japanese governor and his superiors in Edo, the capital, which is what Tokyo was called at that time. The governor suggested that Doof and Blomhoff appeal directly to the shogun to see if there was any wiggle room. On September 28, 1817, Governor Kanazawa read the shogun's reply to this petition. I quoted it at the top of this episode. The decree of expulsion ended with the words, quote, These imperial decrees are issued according to precedent, are irreversible, and no appeal against them shall be allowed. In early October, Doof sent a fresh petition to the governor asking him to forward it to Edo. In the meantime, the Dutch worked out a trade deal with the Japanese, a swap of Japanese copper ingots for European cotton that had been brought on the ships. On October 15th, Governor Kanazawa told the Dutch that he would not forward the latest petition. In fact, the shogun had officially reprimanded Kanazawa for allowing the women to land on Dishima Island at all. Because Jan was evidently still sick, the governor gave them until the end of November to clear out. Tidia herself wrote the final petition. Dated November 25, 1817, she implored Kanazawa to let her stay. Your Excellency, she wrote, please do not feel anger at the liberty taken by this sad woman, who for fear and sadness no longer knows what she is doing, respectfully requesting that if perhaps His Excellency has a wife and children himself, he knows how difficult separation would be, and will take pity on this unhappy woman." Tedia's letter seems to have made things worse, not better. The Japanese were offended, and now Doof saw the continued presence of Tedia and Petronella as having the potential to cause an international incident between Holland and Japan. The Dutch were able to drag their feet a few more days, loading belongings onto the ships and such, 
and an earthquake that struck Japan on November 30th caused an additional delay. But within the week, there was nothing more they could do. Kanazawa was not unheeding of tedious circumstances. He seems to have felt bad about the decision. Although quickly to be replaced by another governor, Kanazawa authorized a gift of 1,600 pieces of silver to be paid to the Dutch before they left. He had worked extensively with Doof, who was leaving Japan forever, so it was probably more of a farewell gift than a consolation prize to Tidia, but still a nice gesture. On December 6, 1817, the Vroe Agatha and the Canton left Nagasaki Harbor. Jan Koch Blomhoff, now staying on alone as director of the post, wrote this, quote, After I complied with the most inhumane orders of the Japanese court by embarking my dearest wife and son of just 21 months, I returned to the island. All in all, Tidia had not done much during the nearly four months she had lived in Japan. She never left the confines of Dishima Island, she was ill for much of the time, and in any event she was taking care of a young baby. There are reports of dinners and celebrations among the Dutch, sometimes involving Japanese visitors. Tidia apparently enjoyed sushi. In early September, before the issues of the petitions began to weigh on the family, they were visited on Dashima Island by two prominent Japanese artists. Kawahara Keiga was a painter and a special correspondent from Edo, and he had rights to visit the island and interact with foreigners. He brought with him another artist, Ishizaki Yushi, who had been Keiga's mentor. The two artists brought their sketchbooks and paints, and on September 12, 1817, while cotton was being offloaded from the canton, the Dutch family and their servants sat to be drawn and painted by the Japanese. It is these pictures that ultimately formed Tidia Bergsma Blomhoff's chief legacy to history. Kega and Yushi did several versions and copied them many times over their subsequent careers. Seeing Europeans in second-decade costume portrayed in the style of Japanese art is quite startling and interesting. The painters captured the whole family, Jan sitting in an armchair, Tidia on the sofa, Petronella standing nearby, and sometimes Johannes and Marathi are included. I'm taken by one image of Tidia. Her face is very deeply detailed. She looks sad, almost wistful. You can almost see on her face how far she was from home and how alien these new surroundings must have been to her. This image of Tidia Bergsma appears in the header image for this episode on the website. These pictures, reproduced thousands of times, informed the Japanese of what Westerners, and especially Western women, looked like. The vast majority of Japanese in the Tokugawa period never saw a European in the flesh. The image of Tidia was reproduced on prints, on cards, and in books all over Japan. One of the original paintings was given to Jan Koch Blomhoff and actually remains in the Blomhoff family today, 200 years later. As for Tidia herself, the rest of her story isn't very happy. She and Jan banged at least once while she was in Nagasaki, because she was apparently pregnant by the time she left in December 1817. Incidentally, Petronella was also pregnant, five months so, when they left Japan, which meant her conception probably occurred during the voyage from Batavia to Japan in the summer. Petronella's baby was born on the ship back from Batavia to Holland, the Antoinette Jacoba, on May 9, 1818, off the coast of South Africa. Tidia herself was very ill. The meat aboard the ship went rotten almost immediately, and she was living on ship's biscuits and a little wine, not a very good diet for an expectant mother. Yet curiously, the baby seemed to take a long time in coming. 
Tidia still hadn't given birth by the time she and Petronella reached Amsterdam in early September, where Jan's parents took Tidia in. A doctor was summoned immediately. Astonishingly, it turned out Tidia was not pregnant at all. It was a phantom pregnancy. She never really recovered. During the next two years, Tidia remained weak and sick, gradually fading away to nothing. On April 2, 1821, she died, never having seen her husband again. Jan Koch Blomhoff was now a widower, but he went on to have an illustrious career. He stayed in Japan another six years, returning to Europe in 1823, where he reunited with his son by Tidia and raised him. He married again and lived as a rich and prominent friend of the Dutch court. He died in 1853. The same year, the American Commodore Perry quote-unquote opened Japan. That event was the end of Sakoku, the period of isolation. The appearance of Matthew Perry and his warships quite suddenly in Tokyo Harbor in 1853 was a shock to the Japanese state and society that they never really recovered from. It was a move of pure imperialism. Since the early 1600s, Japan had declined to be part of the growing global capitalist economy, and by the 1850s this was no longer acceptable. The United States, which sought to control as much trade and commerce in the Pacific as possible, saw an opportunity to flex its muscle. Perry's mission was to conquer with the dollar. The end of Sakoku was a fuse that eventually burned down to the end of the Tokugawa government. Just 14 years later, in 1867, the last shogun gave up his power to the new emperor, establishing what is known as the Meiji Restoration, the rapid modernization of Japan. The little trading post on Dishima Island was long since obsolete. Curiously, almost no one remembered the epic voyage of Tidia Bergsma Blomhoff. Even in Holland, her story was unknown, perhaps because she rarely told it before her premature death. Even as reconstructed by her descendant, René Bersma, in 2002, Tidia's story leaves something to be desired. The historical record simply doesn't give her much agency. Even in Kega's portrait, she seems kind of passive, a figure to be acted upon rather than a woman in control of her own destiny, which is what we would like to think about a woman who had a life journey as long and strange as the first Western woman to visit Japan. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Check out the bonus episode for this episode, the after show called Benihana Nights, and remember my World War II class, and don't forget the Second Decade book coming out in a few months' time. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My principal historical source for this episode was Tidia, the first Western woman in Japan, by Rene P. Bersma, Hotai Publishing, 2002. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech. Com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.